Let's go. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. We're going to read all the way to verse 40. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called Pharaoh's, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea on, as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, <coughs> and David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. So we have this story of, of Moses and the Israelites now. We've, we've covered Genesis. We've covered basically the book of Genesis. And now the author of Hebrews is going to give you a blitz overview of Exodus all the way to the, the, sec, the Second Chronicles. So he's giving you this blitz overview of everything, and he's going to throw in there at the end, I don't have time to tell you about all the prophets and all the, all the other things. I don't have, we would be here all day. I don't have time for that. If I, if I did start to tell you, it would just be unending how many things would happen here. And I'm trying to write this in 40 verses. I'm just kidding. He doesn't, he didn't, they didn't write the verses. So he writes this out about Moses. And he, he explains this about Moses. And he's already talked about Abraham. And I just want to remind you of a couple things. One, 
These are normal people. Abraham, normal guy. Not a superhero. Not a superhero. He's a normal guy. Moses, normal person. In fact, there's a great scene in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses argues with God and we're not told a lot of what Moses says. I think that's because Moses is the one that wrote it down. So he doesn't make himself look too bad. He just makes himself look a little bad. But there's a whole conversation that goes on, and Moses keeps coming up with excuse after excuse after excuse, and God says, go to Egypt, go to Egypt, go to Egypt. He says, go to Egypt and free my people. And Moses says, I can't do that. I don't have any, I'm not, I'm not able to go to Egypt. I can't do that. I'm, I'm weak and small. And God says, okay, I'll make you strong. And he gives him these signs that he's going to do. I don't, what do I do if Pharaoh asks? Who sent me? He's going to go, well, this is what you're going to do, and these are the things you're going to do. And Moses goes, come on. Well, I can't talk. I'm not a good speaker. And God says, fine, Moses. Take Aaron with you, and he can do all the talking, and you just have to tell Aaron what to say. And I will make you the mouthpiece. And Moses says, I can't go. I can't, I can't do it. I'm not going. Chapter 4, he's on his way. Right? There's something that happened in there that we don't get to see. <laughs> that, that Moses is just asking his dad's, his, his father-in-law's permission to be able to go. Can I go to Egypt? And he's going in the next chapter. Then there's this weird interlude where he fails to circumcise his son. And, uh, and his wife intervenes and saves his life. Weird story. There's a lot there, a whole bunch there. We don't have time to unpack this morning. I'm going to use the Hebrews 11 excuse that I don't have time to tell you all about. So, Moses was a normal guy. Not a superhero. He didn't get everything right. In fact, he often gets things wrong. But, what is it that sets Moses and Abraham and these people apart? What is it that makes them different from the other people in the world? Yep. Faith. That's it. That's the only thing. Faith. There's no special dramatic skill they have. They're not talented. They're not amazing people. They're just normal. With the exception of they have an extraordinary God who changes everything. Remember the horizon line. Remember last week when we talked about faith and we talked about running towards the horizon and as you run you don't look down at the ground where you are you look at the horizon line where you're going you look at the goal you don't look here you look out there when you run nobody uh, who runs long distance ever wins the race by looking at their feet you run long distances you run the race by looking at the horizon at the end goal at the goal line so here in Moses, we have this example of someone who takes steps to get to the horizon. So the faith of Moses begins, he begins talking about him right here in verse 23. By Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by, by faith. Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was beautiful. Now. It is, it is interesting in the Bible, in Exodus, that Moses is called beautiful as a child. He's called lovely, uh, or really the word there is good. And there's a reason that the Old Testament author uses this word to describe Moses. You see, when God created something, 
in Genesis. He sees it's tov. He says it's tov. And it is tov. Tov is the word good. He sees it's good, says it's good, and it is good. Here, they have this child born. And the parents see that he is good. Now, what happened in Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, what happens is not good. It's not good. And so they're seeking the child who will bring back that which is good. The completion of Sabbath rest. Who will end the slavery of sin and bring back Sabbath rest. And Moses is a picture of that which is to come. Jesus Christ who is good. Indeed, in a small way, every single child born is a hearkening to that one child that came, Jesus Christ, who would set everything right and make everything good again. So the parents see this baby boy and they see that he is good. And they hide him for three months. Now, if you've never had a kid, you don't know how difficult that would be. But to hide a kid for three months would be near impossible. I mean, the first couple weeks, maybe you'd be all right. You'd be able to stay inside, avoid any neighbors. Nobody would ask any questions. Oh, she's sick. That would be the excuse, right? Oh, she's sick. Uh, she's got the flu. She's had the flu three weeks? Yeah, she's had the flu. It's the flu. You can't go in there. Don't go in there. You'll get sick too. Don't go. Don't go. Don't go. Right? Baby's hidden away. Some noises go on and you just go, oh, that's the dog. It's the dog. Don't worry about it. Right? But eventually it would get difficult. And they hide him away for three months because they saw that he was good. And then there's the second line here. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, okay, I want you just to imagine. I know it's hard to imagine, but imagine that we had a pharaoh or a king who was over us who said, all children born to Christian parents must be thrown into the Brazos River at birth. They must be murdered. Under penalty of death, you will die if you don't do this. Imagine that that's the situation here. And your wife is pregnant. Or you are pregnant. And you have this community around you that is willing to hide the baby. That is willing to take care of this, kind of keep it secret. You have a community around you that's willing to do that. You have some midwives who come and they take the, they take the kid and they, they make sure the government thinks that the kid is dead. But the government walks your streets listening for babies. Knocking on doors. Kicking in doors when they think they've heard a baby cry. Ripping children from their parents. I don't think the author of Hebrews means that these people never experienced any fear. I don't think that's what he means. 
I think what he means when he says they did not fear the king's edict is that they had their eyes on something greater. And the greater thing outweighed what they were afraid of. That's what I think he's getting at. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. There would be moments of extreme tension. Just imagine laying in bed at night, waking up, your baby's crying, waking up and seeing the night guard walking down the street through your window. And how quickly you would spring from the bed and board the window up and put something between the baby and the window and cuddle the baby and hold it close and try to put your finger in its mouth so it would bite or something so it would keep from crying to alert the guard. Can you imagine the panic that would set in at 3 a.m. in the morning when you're already not sleeping well because you know what's happening around you? You see, I don't think that they didn't experience fear. I think that they had their eyes on something greater. And I think that we can see that as we read through this chapter. That it's not an issue of being perfect. That being a Christian and having faith is not an issue of being perfect, but it's an issue of keeping your eyes on the goal <coughs> that other things are trumped by this. They are superseded by the reality that there's a kingdom that we hope for and a king who is greater than this world. I think that's what he's getting at here when he says, for three months they hid him because they saw the child was good and they were not afraid of the king's edict. God sees the birth of a child as good. And where the world says, Deny God's good for your own. Where the world says to deny God's good for your own, the people of God do not fear what the world can do to them. Faith does not make decisions based on what ifs and fear. Faith makes decisions based on God said, and I do. Faith does not make decisions based on what ifs and fear. But God said, and I do. So Moses' parents make these decisions based on God said this, therefore I'm going to do this. When everything else in the world looks like they should do something else. Everything else looks like they should do something else. They should end this baby's life. They should run away. Anything else. To save their own skin. And yet they see the baby is good. And God has said this child is good. That children are beautiful and wonderful. And God has valued life. And they say even if the world says that I should do it this way. God says I should do this. Faith does what God says not what the world says, or what fear might dictate. Verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, Moses denies privileged position. You see, faith here chooses following God over sinful indulgence. Faith chooses following God over sinful indulgence. And here's the funny thing about that sinful indulgence. Moses would not have been technically in error to keep his position as Pharaoh's adopted grandson. God put him in the way of Pharaoh's daughter. God saved his soul by tying him to that family. God saved him as a child by tying him to Pharaoh's daughter. Yet here the Bible says that that is what? What does it call it? Fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses finds himself in a position of privilege and prestige and high honor. And instead of living in that lot and saying, I am, this was given to me by God, I deserve this, this is mine. Instead of doing that, what he does is surrender it (coughs) to be identified with the people of God. (coughs) So (coughs) hear what he's saying here. For Moses... Sin would have been passive acceptance of literally the lot that God gave him. Passive acceptance of a God-given position. But instead he obeys and surrenders that God-given position. Understanding that the reproach of Christ or the reproach of being a believer, of following after God's will, is more valuable than the very position he was given. For Moses, sin would have been passive acceptance. We have this statement on sin here. Just think about what sin is. It is one fleeting, and it is temporary pleasures. It's fleeting first, and it's pleasure, but temporary. There are things the world will use to appeal to you, Christian, that are temporary pleasures. They are fleeting in that they, you are going to try and grab at them, and they are going to go. You're going to grab at them for your pleasures, for your joy, for your happiness, for your peace. You're going to try to hold them, and they are going to slip from your hands and run, fleeting. And they are pleasures. The world wants you to think with your desires, with your selfish desires, rather than what God says. Remember, Christians, people of faith, do not operate under a system of fear that they're going to lose pleasure or prestige. Instead, they operate from a system of God says, and there's the goal. God says, and I'm playing the long game. I'm going 
all the way to the goal line. I'm looking at the horizon line when I run. Faith chooses following God over sinful indulgence. The application here is obvious. Like Moses, we must grasp at eternity. We must grasp at eternity and see the things of eternity as of greater value than the things of this earth. So faith, second, faith values reproach and discipline over the wealth of the world. Faith values reproach and discipline over the wealth of the world. Look at verse 26 again. He considered, Moses considers the reproach of Christ, the offense of being a follower of God. He considered that offense greater than the wealth and treasures that he was given. Remember, his sin would have been passive acceptance of what he was given. That would have been his sin. Just a side note, we live in the most prosperous country in the world. If you are an American, you are in the top 50% of the world. I would actually argue you're probably in the top 10% of the world. Simply by being American. By being in the United States. Case in point, everybody in here owns a pair of shoes. You know, there are countries where people don't. Shoes. Simple. We take them for granted. Most of us own a lot more. A lot of us own two cars. We have houses. Places where we live. We have food to eat. We eat more than one meal a day, most of us. There are places where they do not. There are countries where they cannot. We are privileged, just like Moses. And yet, what is the author of Hebrews going to tell us in just two chapters? Remember those who are in prison as though you are there. Remember those who are suffering as though you are there with them. We are in the position of Moses. And we can passively accept our life and ignore the hurts of those around us and the trouble of those around us. Or we can live with open hands and open arms of the gospel and tell the world that there's a king who loves them and desires for them to know him. And we can be viewed as weird and outcast and odd to the rest of the world. We can consider the reproach of Christ greater. Or we can sit back and enjoy our private prestige. And, and passively indulge in what the Bible here calls fleeting pleasures of sin. But Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. For those of you who don't know the story of Moses, Moses, uh, just real quick, I didn't, I didn't think about this until just now, but if you don't know the story, Moses was uh, born a Jew in a time when it was illegal to be a Jew, and if you were born, you were murdered. So he's born a Jew, and he's put into a basket, and he's sent down the Nile by his 
uh, mother and sister. His sister stays near the basket and, ta- and kind of it seems like the scripture indicates there's some guidance of that basket to where Pharaoh's daughter would be. The guidance is not his sister, but it's supernatural. God does it, takes the baby to where the Pharaoh's daughter would be uh, bathing with her entourage. And she sees the baby and thinks the baby is beautiful. Thinks the baby is lovely. And says, oh, this will now be my kid. And takes the child, recognizing that it's a Hebrew, because they have a different color skin than the Egyptians that are there. She takes the baby. She realizes it's a Hebrew. She goes and gets a Hebrew midwife. Guess what happens? The sister who's been watching the basket goes, oh, I know a Hebrew midwife who will wean the baby for you and raise the baby for you. And guess what she does? She goes and gets Moses' mother. Moses' mom gives birth to the baby, hides the baby for three months, sends the baby into the river, trusting that the Lord's going to provide. God then saves the baby by giving the baby to Pharaoh's daughter, who then goes and gets Moses' mother to raise the baby. God provides everything for his faithful people. Moses is raised by his mother, clearly being taught what it means to be a Jew and what a Jew is like. And he is raised in Pharaoh's court. And at time when he is old enough, probably 10, 12, the mother is dismissed as a nurse, no longer raising the child like a maid. And now Moses gets educated. He spends the next couple years being educated in Pharaoh's court. And then what Hebrews tells us is he looks at Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and he looks at the Jews who are suffering and in pain, and he goes, I'm done with Pharaoh. This is wrong. This is wicked. And he goes to identify with the Jews and serve with them. Now, he's clearly treated differently. If you read Exodus, he is clearly still treated as one of Pharaoh's grandkids. Nobody beats Moses. Moses murders an Egyptian who is whipping some Jews, and he, uh, he's trying to save them by his own hand. He murders an Egyptian who's whipping some Jews, and the Egyptian does not whip Moses, does not turn on Moses. He, he can't, because Moses is, by all practical purposes, still called one of Pharaoh's kids. But here's the issue. He decided... He would not be. He would not take advantage of that privilege. And instead, he would serve with his people. He would be identified with them. So Moses, by faith, decides that the discipline and reproach of Jesus Christ, bearing his name on his shoulders, bearing the name of Yahweh on his shoulders and on his forehead, that that would be of more value than the wealth of the world. And why? Because he was looking for the reward at the end. That's why. Verse 26. For he was looking to the reward. He was looking for heaven. You want a motivation to be righteous. You want a motivation for discipline. Think about heaven and what it means to be in heaven with God Almighty. 
He chose Christ over the world because heaven. That should be a shirt. Because heaven. In fact, I might make that. Because heaven. Then, here in verse 27, we've got, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So by faith he leaves Egypt. Now, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Have you, if, if you ever read the story in Exodus, Moses kills a man, and it says he ran because they, he was afraid. He was caught. He thought, oh no, I must run away. So we can read this as describing that, that moment. And I want to remind you, what the author of Hebrews is saying is not that these people never felt any fear. The author of Hebrews is saying that they had their eyes on something greater. They were headed towards something greater. They were headed towards something greater. Moses leaves in faith, knowing that there's something greater. Knowing that there's something greater. And he could not, hear me, he could not articulate everything that was greater. If you were to run into Moses in the wilderness before he goes to uh, battle with Pharaoh, before he goes back into Egypt, if you were to run into him and say, what are you looking like? Can you explain to me why you chose to be identified with your people and why you're out here in the wilderness worshiping this God and why you, you left Egypt? I don't think he'd look at you and go, yeah, I don't think he'd look at you and go, uh, well, let's talk about the articulation. Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to rescue us and, he's, and we're going to be saved from sin. I don't think he'd, he'd explain to you the Messiah. I don't think he would. I think he'd look at you and he'd go, because there's something greater and I know the God that is greater and I'm afraid of him. He's bigger than this other guy. And I know that he has something Greater, I think he'd look at you and I think he'd go, because heaven. Something greater is ahead. So one of the aspects we see about faith here is that it endures. It's not fearing the world or the decisions that the world has placed on it or the, the way the world tells it it should live. Faith, the response of faith is one that fears God over the world. Faith is active and responds to God as though God is visible. By faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. We live our lives as Christians as if we can see the invisible. I have friends who, they don't, they don't believe. And they, at every turn, 
are baffled. Why would we pray? They're, they're baffled by it. They don't get it. They don't understand why every Sunday we gather and every Sunday we have our moment of war where we go to battle. By the way, that's what that prayer time is. If you don't grasp, that's when I'm asking you to pick up your gun and fight back. That's what we're asking when we pray together. It's war. And it's working. And it's going to continue to work. But they, they're baffled. They're, why do you do that? Why would you lay out time day after day after day, praying constantly? Why would you do this? Why would you pray for these things? This, you're just screaming into a void. And here's the thing. We pray and we live and we work and we do all the things we do as though we can see that reward. As though we can see heaven. And like the martyrs in the book of Revelation who are standing before the throne crying out for God to return. We do the same. Do you know in the Bible it says that the spirit and the bride cry for Christ to return? The Spirit and the Bride cry out. The Holy Spirit of God has been crying out for 2,000 years for Christ to return. If the Holy Spirit of God can cry out for that long for for Christ to return, how much more Can I, who He indwells, persist and endure in crying out for the return of my King? We pray because it will happen. Because it's coming. We pray and we fall on our face and we choose to endure in active response to God as though we can see Him. Then in verse 28, by faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. If you don't know this story, this is the last plague. It's intense. Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. After severe argument, no, I will not. And Moses says, please don't do this. He says, your firstborn child, the firstborn of every family, will die tonight. And Pharaoh scoffs at him and kicks him out. And Moses goes to the people of Israel and says, this is how you'll be saved. You'll take the blood of a lamb. You'll sacrifice that lamb to the Lord. You'll take the blood and you'll mark your doorposts on each side. This is the motion that the rabbis did, by the way, to remember that marking every time. They did it for 2,000 years before Christ came. This motion to commemorate the Passover lamb every time. Do you see the motion? Mm-hmm. Every time. The rabbis did it at Passover. Every time, the third cup, that's when they did it. 
every single time. Jesus with his disciples as the moderator of the Passover feast at the Last Supper probably did this at that third cup. Right before handing the honored sop to Judas. God has written this from the beginning. That Jesus Christ would be the redemption of sins. Be the redemption for sins. He would be the savior of the world. And all who trust in him will be freed from the bondage of sin and death. And death will no longer have reign over them. And they will be free to live in righteous communion with God Almighty. And And Moses held to that by faith. That this would matter. That that would matter. That that would save them from death. Faith trusts in the blood of the Lamb for his rescue. And Moses trusted in the blood of the Lamb, looking always to the reward that is beyond. And then verses 29 through 31, we have this picture of what happens after the Exodus. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So by faith, Israel crosses over the Red Sea. And notice, faith here recognizes that not everyone is saved. Because the Egyptians tried the same, and they drowned. By faith, the Israelites crossed, the people of God, who by faith crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptians tried to copy that, Without faith. And they drown. So we have two messages here, right? One, not everybody believes. Not everybody's saved. And two, religious practice, trying to do the same things as a Christian without actually being a Christian, gets you death. Trying to do Christianity without actually being Christian gets you death. Oh, How tragic. This is where the majority of our culture is. Trying to do Christianity rather than be Christian. Trying to act like we have met Jesus and know Jesus while not actually knowing him or following him or believing him. Faith recognizes salvation. And faith recognizes and accepts that not everyone sees and is redeemed. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. If you've never read that story, it's hysterical to think about. You're an army in a castle, in a, in a walled city. You've got a whole army there. And the opposing army comes out. And you're afraid they're going to attack. So you've got all your guards on the wall and they're ready and they're all, they've got their spears, their arrows, their guns, their weapons, whatever it is. They've got their boiling pots of water, whatever to pour on you. And God said, and you go, okay, Lord, what's the game plan? He goes, walk in a circle for seven days. Walk in a circle for seven days around the city. Each day, come out, blow your trumpet, walk around the city and then go take a nap. That's what God says. Walk around the city each day and go back to your camp. Hang out. Wait till the next day. On the seventh day, all right, Lord, what are we going to do this day? This time, everybody needs to have your weapons ready. 
you're going to walk around seven times. And the last time around, everybody's going to blow a trumpet real loud. By this time, seven days walking around the city, you'd think that there'd be some people who would be like, you're crazy, Joshua, you're nuts. There were. There were lots of people that were telling Joshua he's nuts. And Joshua said, we're going to do it. And they walked around the city. And on the seventh day, they blow the trumpet. And all of a sudden, the walls of the city, this impenetrable city, Jericho, which was on the border uh, by the river, this impenetrable city shakes and the walls fall down. And Israel and Jericho, everybody's shocked. And Israel's like, well, he told us to carry our weapons this time. And they're charged into the city and they take the city. Because there's no walls to prevent it. It's one of the craziest, funniest stories to actually ponder what people were thinking. I mean, this is one of those stories VeggieTales gets kind of right. If they're walking around and they've got stuff being thrown at them, people are laughing at them from the wall. You know, walks around. On the seventh day, everybody's like, what? It worked! Of course it worked. It's God. But it's weird. By faith they obeyed. Israel obeyed. By faith they walked around Jericho and they obeyed. By faith Rahab, and I love how the Bible never gives her a break. Rahab, the prostitute just to remind you that she was wicked, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Why? I just want to take a moment to remind you, the Bible reminds you that she's a prostitute, not so that you look at her and go, right, she's an evil person, but that you look at her and go, oh, the prostitute is more righteous than all the other people. That's why the Bible reminds you of that. That this wicked person is more righteous than all the deacons that were in Jericho. Than all the elders that were in Jericho. Than all the good people that were in Jericho. The prostitute is more righteous than them. And why is she more righteous? Because by faith she looked out at the people of Israel and saw that their God was real. And she saw that there's a kingdom beyond this one. And she trusted in that kingdom. It didn't matter who she was. It mattered what was there. The kingdom of God is what mattered. And that's why she's included in so many of the Bible's stories of heroes. By faith, she gives friendly welcome to the spies. Then the author of Hebrews reminds us all the more. What And what more shall I say for... Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel. So you've got all the judges there, and then you've got David. Now, just back up here for a second. Gideon was a coward. Uh, The Bible literally says his knees shook. Barak was the general who Deborah gets the credit for um, being the judge, and Barak is the general that doesn't do his job. Uh, Samson, oh goodness, Samson in the first chapter of his story breaks every single law for a Nazarite. And then you got Jephthah, and then David, and Samuel. They all, all kind of messed up men. David causes the downfall of Israel. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 9. Samuel is a prophet of the Lord who is so dysfunctional as a father figure to Saul that Saul goes nuts under him. And Samuel never says a positive word to Saul. Yet, these men are considered men of hero, heroism and victory and faith. And why? It is not because they are good. It is because God is good. And He has said, I will do this. And they obeyed. That's it. They look to the reward. Oh, take heart. When we read these stories of the heroes of faith, take heart. They are normal. And the only extraordinary character in the story is God. The only extraordinary hero in the story is God. These men who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. I want to pause here. He's saying that torture and, and death is more valuable than privilege of the world. Catching that? Being outcast from society has greater value than wealth of this world. So we see here, he continues and finishes verse 36. I'm sorry, verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they were about they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Oh, these are heroes, all right. Especially the last ones that are mentioned, whose names are not recorded. He mentions several stories in there and the names are not recorded. And the reason he doesn't record their names is because in heaven, their names are shouted from the mountaintops. There's a a story that um, I was told by a pastor uh, that I had when I was in college who talked about how he went to China to visit the underground church in China. And he was there visiting and he couldn't tell you where it was a rural area but he went to this one house church and they start telling him about their teacher their teacher who comes once a month who comes once a month and stays overnight and and spends basically 24 hours going through books of the bible with them and then he moves on and he said what's his name i'd love to get to know him i'd love to see him and i said oh no we don't know his name and he said well Will I get to meet him? They said, yeah, you'll get to meet him. I think he'll be at your your 10th stop. This is a house church of about 10 people that are hidden. And he'll be at your 10th stop. He'll be there. And he said, okay, okay, yeah, cool. So he goes to this other church, and there's another 10 people there. 
And he said, and they say, well, yeah, after he goes to that church, he comes to ours and spends 24 hours and then goes to this other church, spends 24 hours and, and he goes from place to place. And he's kind of leading this massive conglomeration of churches. And so this, this pastor friend of mine went to about 15 churches and on the 15th church got to see this man. Um, and he, he was struck by this truth that no one knew the guy's name. No one knew his name. No one knew where he lived. No one knew what he, where he came from. They, he was the, he's a pastor. He's going from place to place. And this pastor friend of mine went to about 15 churches, ranging in size from 10 to 20, in various places, all hidden. He did the math. He sat down at the end of his trip and he said, you know, he visited 15 churches in 15 days. What his big, that was the big thing. He was following the circuit of this pastor that, was, that rotated churches. And he asked the pastor when he met him, how many churches do you go to? And the pastor said, somewhere around 50. I'm at each church every other, once, every other, every month or so. So I go to about 50 different churches. He did the math in his head. He said, that's bigger than our megachurches. Did this, did this math and he said, this guy is preaching to more people and impacting more people with the gospel than the famous pastors in our country who have seven to 8,000 people coming. This guy is impacting a world. And no one knows his name No one knows his name. And his pastor stood back and he said, I tell you, when we are in heaven, that guy's name, everyone's going to know. Because he is one whom the world is not worthy. Someone who has given everything for the gospel. This guy is nothing. Except a Bible, clothes on his back, and he travels from church to church to church to church to church. I tell you, that is those who the world are not worthy. That's how I want to be. I want to be so consumed with the gospel that people see me and go, you know, I don't know anything about him, but his God, he talks about all the time. And I know his God, and he's powerful. That is who we want to be. That the world the world would not honor and give us prestige. That's not what we're after. But we're after the reward in heaven that one day we will stand before our king and we will back up truckloads of crowns before his throne and we'll lay them at his feet and we'll go, I know it's not enough. I know it's not enough. It's all I got. I want to bring more. I know it's not enough. I want to bring more. That's who we want to be. Verse 39. And all these 
though commended through their faith. This is beautiful. These heroes of the faith that we just spent a whole chapter going through, these heroes of the faith, all though commended through their faith, though God rewarded them, though they bear testimony to who God is, though they they are commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. They were all looking to a reward that was never brought to fruition for them. Abraham lives in a land as a foreigner. Moses dies in the wilderness. Joshua and the people of Israel, though they take the land, they still have sinful people living in their midst and around them, and they still do not have perfection. They are still at war, even in the land. David, though he is the king after God's own heart, and he's the type, the picture of who Jesus would be, and his, he's promised that Jesus will reign on the throne for eternity, He doesn't get to see it. The exile, the exilic prophets, they don't get to see the return to the land. And then finally, we get to see all of it. Jesus Christ resurrected, sin defeated, life given. And we still await the day when our King returns And everything on this earth is set right. And we are still looking to the horizon. God had a plan, though they did not receive what was promised. And why did they not receive what was promised? Because God had provided something better for us. (coughs) He provided salvation for us that the Old Testament points to and looks at and goes, there is something greater on the horizon that we press towards. And we get to see it in Jesus Christ. The mystery has been made known. Apart from us and the work that God does in us and in our hearts, bringing salvation to the world, apart from us, their work would have been imperfect. It would have been incomplete. But because of Jesus, the Old Testament now makes sense. And everything is completed. In Christ Jesus. Oh, that you would trust in Jesus Christ for all things. That your every waking moment would be one of trusting in Him. That your decisions would be made on faith. And that you would have life. Let's pray together. And we will remind ourselves of what He has done.